In December 2010, images of a Tunisian vegetable merchant were spread across the internet, and it started a revolution across the Arab world. In the coming months, it would topple governments, bring political reform, and hope of a new dawn. Social media was seen to be a tool in mobilizing millions of people into the streets. An early academic paper suggested that social media had become the scaffolding upon which civil society can build as they provide democratic activ activists information networks not easily controlled by state or co and coordination tools. While the authors are careful to point out that the outcomes of the uprisings were, at the point of writing, still uncertain, the sentiment shared was widely held that internet platforms are democratizing tools. However, as we know, the Arab Spring turned into the Arab Winter, and it's become clear that social media can be mobilized by movements to very different ends. Reports of hate speech on Facebook inciting violence against the Rohingyas in Myanmar in 2016. WhatsApp messaging organizing mobs turning on Muslim vendors and shopkeepers in Sri Lanka in March 2018. And Russian troll factories seeking to fuel social tensions and influence elections in Western countries are but some examples of the headlines in recent years. For most of the part, social media is about entertainment. Funny videos of jumping cats, or photos of your aunt's holiday, or the latest lip-pouting exercises by one of the members of the Kardashian clan. But it's now apparent that social media also creating a number of problematic issues. And this is leading to polarization and seriously eroding the democratic fabric of our societies. These outcomes are not inevitable and thoughtful legislation can force the tech industry to, to more, be more transparent about their algorithms and how who is paying for their services as well as being more proactive in removing harmful content. And this can go a long way. The exact nat nature and extent of such legislation will be up for people who are dealing with policy. But beyond such state intervention, there is a role for individuals and civil society. For those who follow Christ, there is a particular call to be peacemakers, whether offline or online. There are a number of practices and habits that such peacemakers need to develop in a digital age. So um, some of you might have expected Kenneth Bennett to be here speaking this morning. Um, unfortunately, he's stuck abroad uh, due to unforeseen circumstances and couldn't make it back in time. Um, I work for Codec Research Centre on Digital Theology based at St John's College in Durham. Uh, and we have a partnership with Premier Radio, um, and that's why I've been invited to, to step in this morning. Um, a little bit about myself. 
So I run the MA in Digital Theology. Um, my PhD was in Political Theology and I studied a group of intellectuals who met in the UK during the Second World War planning for a Christian cultural revolution. Um, I also uh, coordinate a group of academics and activists and we, we gather to think about how we as Christians can be involved in, and engage with the current political climate in Europe. <coughs> so the topic is being a peacemaker in a digital age. Um, and I've, I've got a lot of material here. Um, but it would just be great just to hear maybe what some of your questions and concerns are and perhaps why you chose to come to this particular session. So if you have any questions, uh, comments about that, I appreciate that. Your name, please. My name, Jonas Kerberg. So obviously, as, as a politician, um, you find that social media can be quite a positive environment. Um, and so I guess one of the, the kind of things that I ponder regularly is, you know, a how do I respond as a politician that is politically sensitive, but b most importantly, how do you kind of respond to that as you're online when uh, you're, you're trying to kind of maintain your Christian witness? Mm -hmm. um, so that was both interesting. Okay. Yeah. I just recently had a, a kind of um, almost an argument on a church Facebook page about refugees in, in North Glasgow and that the individual message shouldn't be here about the thing. And I was, I was kind of struck with this do we engage with that? And when you do it, it becomes heated. How do you take the heat out with that particular argument, if you like? Mm. Okay. I'll conclude with that, which is just to ask your views about when we should engage with keyboard warriors who are increasingly outrageous. Mm. Whereas yeah. if it's face to face, we probably can't be arguing them down. Yeah. And do we escalate by responding? Okay. Just the, the concern of, um, uh, of freedom of speech issues that, that uh, the, the providers of the networks, um, their agenda, um, you know, the, the, non, the sense that there's of non neutrality really of what's going on. And, and uh, shutting down platforms that, uh, that you feel you could be at the receiving end of being shut down at some point in the future if you transgress their, okay. their ideas. So the power of the platforms in terms of freedom of speech, yeah? Just to expand a little bit on digital theology. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, um, that's helpful. Um, 
I'll be able to address some of those during the presentation, but there's also hopefully time for a Q&A at the end. But I'm hoping that we can, it can be a little bit interactive throughout, and so, uh, you know, we'll actually treat this as a seminar and not just a presentation. Um, so I think what I will do is I'll, I'll give you some, I'll raise some of the issues around social media and how it works and how it's affecting us. Um, and then think a little bit more about what are some of the practical things that we can do and how should we, we how should we be working within this, this, this new world. Um, but I thought we'd start by, if you could actually um, uh, maybe uh, organise yourself in groups of threes and fours and ask yourself, you know, what are some of the good examples that you've seen and good users, of social political users of social media in the recent years? And um, it'd be good to have that to, to begin with. So three to fours. Okay, I wonder if I can have one example from each group, very briefly, just a sentence or two. Do you guys want to start off? 
recently in um, in Ukraine um, and I had a chance to to see Maidan Square and some of you remember the protests that went on there in 2013 and 14 and so my, my tour guide was a wonderful man and uh, he's a Baptist minister and he was very active during the whole time that this spread the revolution and protests went on and and in our press, at least from my reading, it's, it, it's referred to the Euromaidan revolution. Um, but people in Ukraine, they talked about, uh, it talked about it as the revolution of dignity. And that's really nice, isn't it? And that's because they felt that there was such a bond between people and the fact that they were able to, for most part, restrain from violence and looting but they, were, they, were, they, they cared for one another, provided food and, sh and, and clothing for one another, and they cleaned up after themselves. And so there was a sense that they were standing together in this dignity. Um, and the church has played a very active part in providing food and shelter and counseling. Um, and each day, uh, the protesters, and this, this, was, this was by popular demand, they had these uh, voting sessions where, where the, the crowds could say, yay or nay, essentially. And, and they voted to have a prayer meeting first thing every morning. And with time, the vote went up to have those, meet, those prayers every hour, and then eventually consistently, continuously throughout. So um, people spoke of a deeply spiritual experience around this, this, this time. And social media played a key role uh, in, in the revolution. This um, is a post uh, by journalist Mustafa Naiman, um, and he, he was kind of the one that instigated the protest to begin with, and with this particular Facebook post. And this is now displayed at the Maidan Square itself. And here he's essentially asking people to join him. It's, it's, it's time to stop talking, but if we're serious about this, we need to do something. And that evening, 50 people gathered at the square with them, and that's how it started. And, and social media became a, an instrumental tool in coordinating 
different groups um, during the, the, the time that the protests lasted. But social media has certainly got a lot of issues, and it's, it's a, uh, a lot of issues are, 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 are changing the way we do democracy, changing democracy. Um, and I'll just outline some of the few of the issues that you, you will be aware of, but it's just helpful to have this in the back of our mind. And so it's easy to forget that fake news is a new word, it's only been in our vocabulary for a few years. It's a term that's come to describe content that appears as news, but it's either unfounded, fictional, or even joke, aimed at spreading <coughs> disinformation or to influence political outcomes. So the spread of fake news is now prevalent around elections. So for example, uh, about a third of the Twitter content that was shared around the Swedish parliamentary elections last year was deemed to be fake news. And some of it was obviously spread by foreign actors. The purpose of such content is to create fear and social tension. Junk or fake news undermines democratic institution because it erodes public trust in political structures, raises suspicion against the elite or other groups, and thus further populism and break down any hope of any genuine public conversation. This information can have real consequences, such as, such as the shooting at the pizza restaurant in Washington in 2016. I don't know if you saw the news about that. Um, but there were conspiracy theories that at this particular restaurant, there was a child sex, abu uh, sex abuse ring that was led by Hillary Clinton. And a man, he decided to take the law into his own hands and turned up with an assault rifle. Okay. A new phenomenon that's emerging is deep fakes. Have you seen them? Okay. Deep fake. Deep fake. Deep fakes are very realistic but fabricated videos. And I'm going to show you an example. Okay. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. So, uh, for instance, they could have me say things like, uh, I don't know, Killmonger was right, or uh, Ben Carson is in the sunken place, or, how about this, simply, President Trump is a total winkle. Now, you see, I would never say these things, at least not in a public address, but someone else would. Someone, like Jordan Peele. This is a dangerous time. Moving forward, we need to be more vigilant with what we trust from the internet. It's a time when we need to rely on trusted news sources. Okay. I mean, isn't that scary? Right? Do you know Trump denying all these videos that have been, been obviously taken of him? You know? The possibilities. Uh, and there are ways of checking whether they're authentic or not. But most people don't. Okay? 
So even when I was, show, uh, I was showing this to my wife and I was, she knew what I was preparing, she didn't realize it was a fake video, right? But it was created by the man you saw at the end. Very simple tools required. Yeah? When somebody like Donald says it's a fake, how can you go and check if it's you just said you've got ways of checking it. Oh, well, the videos themselves, you can check how they've been made, right? Um, so there, there's, there, there's ways to check how, work, you know, how the videos has been made themselves. So that's, that would be one example. But then you have uh, the problem of the fake of the fake, and then somebody's saying, it isn't a fake, and you don't know whether they're saying. I, you know, I, I think the problem is not so much whether we can determine or not determine whether they're fake or not. It's about public perception. And what it does... It, what it does to our ability to have a conversation in society, right? If this is constantly going on, you know, I can't, I can't be 100% sure whether this is a real video or a fake video, you know, I c and technology will be more, get more and more advanced. Okay, so it's more what it does to our ability to have conversations. And I think there's something very fundamental about, you know, you, you know we will have disagreements about you know, existential truth or political ideology, but you, at some point you need some factual arguments to talk about real things and to make decisions over them. So I'm, I'm, I'm highlighting the issues here um, and, and what it does to our society, this, this whole phenomenon. Uh, a very closely related issue is that of hate speech. And it's impossible to measure the extent of this but in the months leading up to the EU election just this year, Facebook themselves identified pages which had a total number of 25 million followers and, and, and 500 million posts by white supremacist group. Okay, that's the kind of extent of this. Hate speech divides people into simplistic categories of them and us fuel social tension and create a climate in which radical groups can thrive. Another form of hate speech is trolling, which can be aimed at public figures. Research suggests that trolling, are we we're aware of the term trolling? Okay. But trolling is basically harassing someone online. Um, so either by um, putting messages on, on someone's tweet or Facebook page. So public figures are particularly vulnerable to this. Um, and research shows that it can be as damaging as offline harassment and bullying. Okay? So it puts pressure on people in very public positions to behave in certain ways as well. It's a common perception that social media has played a key role in giving voice to extreme wings, fueling the lurch towards the radical right in the, in the current political politics across Europe, and, and maybe to a lesser degree, uh, radical leftist groups. Such groups have for decades been on the fringes of European politics, and since the Second World War, they've been effectively excluded from the public conversations by the main media companies. But in our, and in our mediatized societies, you're simply not heard 
without access to a media platform. The implicit media consensus has changed with the advent of the internet. Because of their exclusion from mainstream media, these fringe groups became early adapters using internet platforms well before political establishment has, had caught on. Far-right groups often use sophisticated methods to get users' attentions. Tactics include setting up general interest pages, so like sports or celebrities or um, uh, cooking. And once people sign up, uh, more radical political content starts uh, appearing in these groups. Radical groups have made extensive use of fake accounts and bots which automatically share content and also micro-targeting. We'll come back to micro-targeting in a little bit. One of the reasons why social media has been seen as a democratizing tool is that it enables exchange between people of different opinions. However, research shows that individuals tend to engage with content in groups that already resonate with a general outlook. And this makes sense because your Facebook wall or your Twitter account or Instagram mostly uh, it consists of friends who think like you, have the same outlook as you. And, and this kind of reinforces your own worldview and your own beliefs. Now you could argue that people have always been influenced by people around them. The, but in the past, you might have been sitting in your room, your, in your, in your uh, dining room, reading your newspaper. And that paper probably would be more or less uh, resonate with your political outlook. Right? But you've been doing it on your own. What's happening with social media and as we, we see now that most news consumption is online, is that there is a whole community engaging with you as you engage with the news. So even when you're exposed to news that don't, you don't agree with, your online tribe joins, joins in rejecting those. So reaffirms it and reinforces that. So in these ways, social media creates echo chambers or filter bubbles that reinforce your views and even worldview. And this can be very powerful. So a, a couple of years ago, I did a consultancy research on uh, Facebook groups by supporters of far-right parties in Scandinavia. And th there's a kind of re repetition of kind of north images and stories that are there about Islamization, about immigrants, um, and about how political elites are, are failing to see the, the apparent and how our societies are falling apart. Now, they, they, these groups express different views from mine. Okay? But spending days just going through this masses and masses of material, you start questioning, oh, there's, there's so much of this. So even when posts were factually wrong, you start questioning yourself, your own views. So you can see how powerful that is if you're in such a context. So in some ways, we all are. Okay? All of us who are using um, uh, social media are at least susceptible to this. 
But it's not only users, how they use it, or their behavior and self-selection, but it's the design of the platforms themselves that creates this effect. The algorithms of search engines and social media platforms use your data to determine what content you're more likely to engage with. So even if you deliberately try to befriend people who have different opinions from you, with time, because you're less likely to engage with those, Facebook will not show them to you. So you won't see them. So this means that you still will most of the time see posts that you agree with. But there's also something more sinister going on. Because companies like Facebook make more money if users stay longer on their platform. What they try to do is they try to get you emotionally. And to some extent, they can do that by pushing content that, that of, of, uh, that's entertaining. So, uh, I don't know, you've seen this, this tons of dogs and cats videos right, going around all the time. Um, but also, because extreme views are more sensationalist, people engage more with them, and therefore the algorithms push those videos or that content imagery as well. And that means that your filter bubble becomes more extreme. Okay. So in this, these ways, social media can entrench people in their opinions, polarize societies into different sociopolitical groupings, and intensify social tensions. So it's difficult to know whether tensions in, social, in Western societies would have arisen anyway. It's possible. But it's clear that social media and the internet have given more ex extreme political movements a new platform after having been effectively excluded from the public sphere by media gatekeepers. Beyond that, as our political engagement happens in parallel filter bubbles, we no longer can assume that there is a shared public sphere or space. The public space has itself been fragmented. And this, to some extent, accounts for why so many political commentators were caught off guard or by surprise by the, the re results of the EU referendum a few years back. So before we um, think of some of the potential responses, I would also like to mention why I think social media is so powerful. Um, now this is, a, this is a post that I found on my wall, and it's shared by a Sri Lankan friend. Um, and uh, it says, uh, and I, I think I just, my question is, how does this actually make you feel? That's, what, that's my, my first question. And it says, Palestinians train their children to be murderers, kill Jews, while Jews train their children to be priests of Most High God to bless other nations. Okay, so how does that make you feel? Very frustrated Sense of feeling of being manipulated by the statement, whatever your views that you must tell beforehand, you, you, you feel it's just too in your face manipulating you. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Challenge. Yeah. Okay. Okay. it may be angry um, because I have my brother-in-law lives in in Israel um, and I know his kids are being brought up to say that the greatest thing you can do is to serve the Israeli army Um, so you know like that that's my gut reaction okay to this so Social media gets us at an emotive level. Theologian James Smith argues that we are first and foremost desiring beings. This means that we react emotionally before we even think. And this is why hate speech and fake news are so effective. They appeal to people's deep-rooted hopes, suspicions and fears rather than their rationality. Social media, then, is an effective tool because it gets us emotionally, not least with the emphasis on images and videos such as this. And this, in turn, deeply shapes us. <coughs> A good example of how this has been exploited is Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica was a company that boasted of having influenced elections around the world, they were employed by the Trump campaign and Leave.eu a couple of years ago and have claimed to have won elections for clients in countries such as uh, Kenya, Brazil and Malaysia. How many of you saw uh, Channel 4's undercover um, uh, video of, of, of Cambridge Analytica? Did anyone see this? Okay, so, so they did an undercover, um, set up an undercover meeting pretending to be representing a wealthy Sri Lankan a politi- a family who wanted to have political influence in Sri Lanka. And I'm just going to show you a clip because I think it's just so, uh, it's, it just shows how they operate and shows that brilliantly. And this is themselves. This is second in command at Cambridge Analytica. I can't remember the first name, Turnbull is the surname. Not a fake video. Sorry? Not a fake video. This is not, well, as far as I know, unless you're um, challenging, oops, sorry. Another meeting was arranged, and this time, a fortnight later at a different London hotel, we get from Cambridge Analytica a memorable lesson in modern electoral tactics. On two fundamental human drivers, um, uh, when it comes to taking information on board, effectively, are hopes and fears, and many of those are unspoken, and even unconscious. You didn't know that was a fear until you saw something that just evoked that reaction from you. And our job is to get, is to drop the bucket further down the well than anybody else. To understand what are those really deep 
deep-seated, underlying fears, concerns. There's no good fighting an election campaign on the facts, because actually it's all about emotion. I think one of their recent overseas campaigns, there was no shortage of emotion. In last year's chaotic and at times violent Kenyan elections, the company worked secretly for the incumbent president of Huru Kenyatta. The campaign was marked by misinformation. Fake news spread through the internet and smartphones. In one survey, 90% of Kenyans said they'd heard or seen false stories about the election. Apocalyptic videos like this, smearing Kenyatta's opponent, Ryder Odinga, went viral in the toxic political atmosphere. This one appears to target specific fears, health, infrastructure, the terror threat, and was heavily promoted on social media and Google. But no one in Kenya seemingly knew who was behind it. Cambridge Analytica strenuously deny any involvement with these videos or any role in negative political campaigning there. In public, they've said little about their recent involvement in Kenya, but in private, it's a source of evident pride. The Kenyatta campaign, which we ran in 2013 and 2017 for, uh, for Kenya. And what you have done in Kenya? We have rebranded the entire party twice, written their manifesto, done two rounds of 50,000, so surveys, amounts of research, analysis, messaging. And then we write all the speeches and we stage the whole thing. So just about every element of his campaign. Okay. Very powerful. And this leads me to my second point. Social media makes micro-targeting possible. So Cambridge Analytica is not the only company that utilizes this. But they collected data from, from users, sometimes in dubious ways, to create um, voters' profiles, which they then can micro-target with certain content that will appeal directly to them. Cambridge Analytica themselves said that they, they had over 5,000 data points for each individual. Okay. You can imagine the precision in your, your marketing that you can have. Of course, it's difficult to verify the extent to which this kind of campaigning is ha has been successful. However, there can be little doubt about the that social media is a powerful marketing tool. It's not for nothing that companies are pouring billions of dollars into online marketing. And finally, it is a cost-effective way. So you can reach millions of people very directly at fairly low cost. Okay, so responses then, and I will major mostly now on uh, the third of this because I think that probably be most relevant for the group that's here and some of the questions that you have. Um, but just to mention briefly, uh, the tech industry um, has come under a lot of criticism um, because of the 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 lack of um, regard for people's uh, privacy. Um, for their um, the lack of action of removing hate hate uh, hate crime, so hate speech, um, but also um, 
just just not being responsible, claiming that we are just a platform, we can't be irresponsible for the content itself. That's changing. Um, so sh uh, Facebook employed 40 people just to monitor the EU elections just the other, uh, the other month. But I think they're still not making the necessary changes to make uh, Facebook a more positive place for engagement because that affects the profitability because it, it would change the way their algorithms run. So that's my little criticism. So we need state legislation and interference. Um, and there are, there are certainly difficulties there. Um, there are difficulties, is one difficulty is that actually this industry moves so fast and legislation doesn't always move so fast. So it can be outdated by the time it comes into force. Um, sometimes the, the actions that a government takes are ineffectual. So uh, uh, Sri Lanka is an example, after the Easter bombings, uh, social media was shut down in Sri Lanka because it was seen to, uh, well, the fear was that it would fuel uh, mob violence and, and false information. Um, but civil groups were concerned that uh, a, a media that was controlled by the government might not give the information that you need. Um, but also, a lot of people downloaded what's called VMPs, which means that it looks like your, your phone is in a different country, so you could carry on using social media anyway. Okay? Um, but I think there are a number, of, a number of areas that governments need to bring in legislation, and that's around removal of harmful content, and greater transparency, so how the companies operate, how their algorithms in particular operate, and then also uh, greater user control, so, so that you'll be able to control your filter bubble a bit better. So you can see, okay, this is where the information is coming from, um, and, and, and make sure that you are more in control in, about the content that, that Facebook and other companies are, are, are pushing to you. Um, and then we need to update our electoral laws. Um, and there's a report that recently came out in the UK, um, um, commissioned by the House, uh, House of Commons. Um, and in this report, they label, they say there needs to be uh, an end to Facebook's actions, and they label them digital gangsters, which I, I, I think is quite strong language for a kind of official document in, in the UK. Um, and it's making a number of recommendations, and they, they seem to me be, be, be uh, wise uh, legislations to bring in. Um, you can download that report if you want to have a look at it. Um, it's very extensive, it's very well researched, if you want to look into that a little bit more. Um, I think BBC is in a tough position, and uh, my observations, uh, being a foreigner in this country, um, is that everyone thinks that bi BBC is biased, regardless of your political position. I, I, you know, I hear people on the left and the right saying the same thing. Um, so there are legislations around, you know, traditional media, 
um, and I that's not really my area of knowledge so I can't really comment extensively whether that's a, a, an adequate way um, I think what's happening is that now that media is moving online uh, there needs to we need to rethink these issues um, but I I kind of feel like BBC is a whole area I'm not so keen to go, can go into, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh. I think you hit it, isn't it, where you get your news. I mean, BBC and the news channels and the papers are reducing and being news providers. And we're very free when we get our news. Yeah. And, and the other thing is it's forcing traditional media companies to play according to social media rules. And that, in part, means pushing sensationalist content. So that's another issue that we have there. Um, and, and also, because of the space that more radical groups have, their content ends up in mainstream media now as well, because that's where it's happening, and that's so media companies will report on that. laws to control tech giants and so on and so forth, but that by definition they cross border. And yeah. we've seen instances where governments in regimes that we possibly might criticise switch off the internet yeah. because they don't like the content. Yeah. So there's a massive conundrum here between free speech yeah. and also control of harmful content. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, I can't begin to understand how we can handle that in a cross-border situation. Any no. opinions on that? No. I think, I think part of the problem is that you can put up firewalls, which China has done. So you can, so China is actively trying to control the internet, and we, we understand why. Um, but there are always ways around it. So I mentioned v VPNs, right? So it's just software you download on your phone, and it tells the internet that you're somewhere else. That's one of the functions it play. So it's very difficult for governments to do, to do that. Uh, but if you think about uh, uh, GDPR, um, that's, one, that's one way in which uh, state regulation has tried to give users more control of, of what data um, companies online, uh, internet companies, collect from you. Um, it, as a user, it's a little bit annoying, and I think that's part of the problem is that we can see the wider, wider issues and the issues around data protection, but when it comes to yourself, you often end up thinking, well, does it really matter? And I'm just gonna click, because I can't be bothered to go through all the, uh, ticking off all the things that I don't want them to do. Okay. Um, but I also think that we are at the beginning of something, and so there is a sense in which we have to work things out. And, and this leads me to my final area, really, um, uh, which I will try and cover in a few minutes. Um, and that is the individual response. Uh, and I think that's important. I've said that there are, there, I think there is need for legislation unless the tech industry self-regulates, which could happen because although numbers on Facebook are not going down, the, the time that people spend on Facebook, especially in the Western world, has gone down. And that's partly because of all the scandals that have been in the last few years. So I think Facebook will eventually uh, make some changes. And then they're making enough money. I think it was um, 
last quarter of 2018, it was six and a half billion dollars. I mean, I think that's enough. Um, anyway, um, so uh, so there needs to be that because because when you think about the algorithms and how they affect us and how companies are using technology to mani essentially manipulate us, uh, there needs to be some conversation about that. But there are things that we can do as users. Um, I just say, I'm in the house vault, <coughs> so I know a little bit about what is going on. Um, there is a white paper out on online harms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. About, and uh, they're currently taking evidence. Uh, I think that until the end of July, people can put their views in if they wish. Okay. And this piece of legislation, it actually sees reality. It will probably be a trailblazer uh, for endeavouring to uh, control companies, international companies, mm -hmm. uh, in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, they cannot control them. We can't no. control them. No. We can seek to influence, but we cannot yeah. control yeah. Particularly if we're living in a world where more and more of us want to be ourselves and not cooperating with other people, mm. where international law increasingly is being undermined. So it's very, very difficult. But people do have an opportunity to express their views. Yeah. Uh, on the okay. Paper. You thank you. On the white paper as well, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's free. Uh, Freedom of speech is huge, but it is, it is online as well as offline, and we still manage to deal with it somehow, um, more or less satisfactory. Right? There's a grey zone that's really difficult to, but that, that's not just on, online. I, I think online ex accentuates things and accentuates a lot of things. So what about what can we then do? Those of us who profess to follow Christ need to continuously seek to live in the shadow of his death, life and resurrection. And that means a commitment to learn how to live peacefully. And that implies character formation. The vast majority of our actions actually come out of who we are. We may also make multiple decisions each day about how to act in various days. And these decisions in turn shape us and shape who we are. As boundaries between offline and online are increasingly blurred, if you're a peacemaker offline, you're likely to be one online. And so be a, to be a peacemaker in a digital age, we need to intentionally foster skills required to live peacefully. And for that to happen, we need to commit ourselves to peaceful actions and habits we need to learn from good examples from the saints. And we need to be part of a community that embodies peaceful living. So developing good habits. Um, there's lots that can be said. So there's a the whole loads of lists that could, create, could be created. And I would have liked to have heard from you what kind of habits you've developed in your own social media use. But it's obvious to me that we need to be commitment to truthfulness as far as we can, because without that, we cannot have a, a helpful conversation. Our engagement needs to be respectful. From a Christian perspective, we, we are committed, committed to a respectful engagement that affords people their God-given dignity. And at height of tension, 
at, at time of heightened tension. We need to be a force for reconciliation and depolarization and inspire genuine conversation. And that just means that we need to be aware of, of, of the posts that we're, or comments that we're sharing on Facebook or on, on Twitter. Uh, or the imagery that we're spending out, sending on, on Instagram. It's just an awareness, taking time, not to, not to engage when we are, are enraged. You know, read our post through again and again. Part of the problem is that it's short messages, so they can be misinterpreted very easily. Okay? So it's just building that kind of awareness and making that habitual. There's also a place for... Um, uh, calling out harmful content and media, social media companies are now making that post possible by providing tools to report on, on hate speech and, um, and, and other content. Um, there's also kind of a, a self or user regulation that's going on where users are saying no this is fake news. So this is another example from Sri Lanka uh, uh, after the Easter bombings where image, this image was shared of Muslims and I don't know the exact context of which, in which this image was shared, but it was clearly shared to incite ethnic tension, ethnic and religious tensions. And a friend posted this, which seems to be going around, this is not even the photo of Sri Lanka, this is face news. These, these are not Sri Lankans, what are you doing? You need to be aware of how. So <coughs> there's a self-education that's going on. People are saying, hey, we need to think about this, and that's already happening. Um, I argue we also need to learn from good examples uh, and we need to think about the people who use social media well. Um, I, I saw uh, Archbishop Angelos here earlier, uh, but I think he's great. I think his, his tweet is a good example of how to engage in helpful ways. And, and this particular post here, it was tweeted um, just after that dreadful beheading of the 21 copt in Liberia in, 2000, in Libya in, in 2015, and that very uh, strong imagery of the, 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 the orange costumes, and um, and this is this is this was uh, his response. He said, "Father, forgive." Hashtag Father, forgive, and it, it kind of diffused uh, the situation for the Coptic community itself, and it went viral and had a huge effect on how Coptics engaged with this particular, in this particular instance. And finally, we need to be part of communities of peace. Um, and I argue that our church can be that. In particular, our church can be that because they provide an offline space in which people with very different uh, opinions and outlooks meet face to face. And uh, it's very important that we have those spaces because it's, it's harder to be angry at someone in their face than it is to their, their Twitter uh, account. You know, um, so we need to create those spaces and the Church of England are doing so, have some great initiatives about actively trying to create spaces where people can meet and have conversations around that. Um, only yesterday they, uh, there was a new initiative uh, by the Archbishop uh, a, a digital charter, um, and I will conclude with this, um, where people can sign up to pledge a, a pledge to use social media well and to, for, for, to make sure that the internet becomes a better place. So it's an initiative like this that we also need and that we all can join in. <laughs>